A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Now, in the last couple of months, I've looked at some of the origins of fascism, and now we are moving on to looking at the evolution of uh, variants of European fascism, why it is different fascisms emerged in Europe in different ways at different times, or within a, a kind of a, a few years of one another from the uh, first fascist party um, being founded in Milan in uh, 1919. Um, once again, we're looking at Roger Eatwell's work, uh, Fascism and History, and uh, he writes in The National Roots of Fascist Movements, The first self-styled fascist movement was founded in Italy in 1919. Within the space of a few years, most European countries witnessed the creation of their own fascist parties. The some, including Hitler's National Socialists, either rarely or never, never referred to themselves as fascist. To understand why they took different forms, and why some prospered and others failed, is necessary to begin with the story well before the First World War and to examine specific national traditions. Stressing the importance of political traditions does not necessarily involve believing that national identity is written on tablets of stone, or coded in genes, nations of diverse organisms, capable of evolution. Political systems, too, are not rigid structures. Parties rise and fall, and constitutions change. Even so, some political systems clearly have firmer roots than others, and uh, are more capable of sustaining shock, or of marginalising challenges. And the past shapes the present in a variety of ways. It helps to define what, what is familiar rather than what is alien, what is legitimate, what is unacceptable. All crucial factors in understanding the actions of political leaders and the masses. So here what we're doing is we are looking at the relationship between national traditions uh, and the kind of uh, origins of political institutions in countries, particularly Germany and Italy, um, and um, the, the um, development of fascism in those countries. Now, fascism itself, the, the, um, the term that emerges in Italy, fascisti, the, the, the fighting squads, um, it has a, a particularly Italian context. 
um, when the term gets bandied around and used to describe um, uh, anyone and everything it really is divorced so far from its I initial t uh, uh, terminology, its initial meaning as to coming to not mean anything at all. And it was for this uh, reason that whilst Nazism can be described as a variant of fascism, it is, was, was not described by um, the Nazis as fascist itself. This was, a, to them, an Italian term. Um, just as um, other political parties in one country now wouldn't appropriate uh, the language of a similar political party or the terminology of a similar political party necessarily um, from, from overseas. So uh, being able to um, distinguish, being able to look at different national traditions helps us to kind of like filter out um, what features of, say, Italian or German fascism happen to be um, kind of accidental or um, things that we might imbue too much um, meaning into when perhaps there is less there than um, might first appear clear, or which um, actual um, traditions of local importance really, really kind of mean something. So today we're going to really focus on um, Italy and Germany, um, but later on we're going to look at the development of uh, interwar uh, French and British fascism as well. Just because Britain never fell to fascism didn't mean that it wasn't prevalent in British society and have uh, a great deal of traction, which it in indeed did. Um, Britain is an interesting one because Britain has crafted itself in the post-war year as the uh, anti as an as an anti-fascist nation. However, um, the reality was that during the Second World War, much of Churchill's considerations about domestic politics were based in um, the knowledge that there was. Um, a significant body of people in Great Britain that had um, uh, antipathy, if not bigotry, towards the Jews, and that had certain sympathies with fascist ideas. Perhaps this doesn't necessarily mean they had sympathies with Germany, but they had sympathies with a, a variant of British fascism, uh, which was far more... Uh, to do with white racial colonialism uh, and the British Empire. So, one of the things about Germany in the um, uh, period from 1871 to 1918-1919 uh, was that much of its historical development, as uh, Richard J. Evans argues, was kind of compressed. It had a relatively short um, historical journey towards uh, the development of, of modern institutions. Um, it had been divided, obviously, throughout the 19th century into small states, of which, um, by uh, 1870, Prussia was the most significant one. But it had existed since, obviously, uh, Frederick the Great had been, um, uh, and all the way back um, to uh, the... Uh, very beginnings of European civilization and the Holy Roman Empire. Um, it had been the site of the, the Reformation. And so uh, German nationalism 
uh, has a very long story. And all nationalisms and fascisms tend to do this. They tend to look back to the, the long story, to find answers to present dilemmas, and fascism always promises uh, the embrace of what is kind of cherry-picked from the past in order to have a kind of a revival moment uh, in the present. Of course, no discussion about the historical roots of uh, nationalist and fascist thought would be uh, complete without Bismarck. Um, Otto von Bismarck, the uh, Chancellor of the new Imperial Germany and the architect of German unification, Roger Eatwell writes, The key individual in the later stages of this process of unification was Otto von Bismarck. Bismarck became the first Chancellor of the new Imperial German Federation, which was created after the triumph against France in 1870. Predictably, given the authoritarian Prussian tradition, the political system over which he presided was far from democratic, even by the standards of the day. The head of the state was the Kaiser, who together with the court, an unelected group such as the landed gentry, the Junkers, wielded considerable influence behind the scenes. The rapid rise of German industry, which was soon to eclipse that of Britain, was bringing other forces into play. By the late 1870s, a tacit alliance had emerged between landowners and industrialists to impose protectionism and to force the government to stem the growing tide of socialism. So the um, development of an organised working class movement in uh, Germany created amongst the landowners, amongst the industrialists and the upper classes, um, a political will to resist uh, them at all costs. Um, and the um, development of socialism um, placed um, pressures upon the authoritarian conservative world that Bismarck had, been, had created uh, when by um, the uh, late uh, 1890s, early 1900s, uh, the Social Democratic Party emerged as the main electoral force uh, in Germany. Part of the process of unification uh, and the uh, surge in uh, nationalist passions resulted in um, a, a growth gradually of uh, anti-Semitic thought. Now the thing about Germany, one of the paradoxes is that prior to the First World War, despite there being a development in anti-Semitic thoughts, these kind of um, growing kind of uh, obscure scribblers at the fringes of society, still in comparative terms compared to Russia or France, Germany is not a particularly anti-Semitic society. Um, the, what Germany is, is a, a, society, a society convulsed by um, nationalist, uh, expansionist and imperialist ideas. And it is a society in which there is a significant number, uh, particularly of young men, who um, f uh, grew up in the decades after unification and felt that they had missed their opportunity for the great manly adventure of, um, um, of unification. And part of their frustration was directed uh, against minorities, of which the uh, German, uh, German Jews make up 0.5 of 1% of the population, um, many of whom were highly assimilated um, and had uh, saw themselves as German and saw themselves as being 
um, part of a German society, um, uh, integrated into uh, almost every level of kind of professional life. And so the question about German anti-Semitism after World War One really is a question about the um, toxicity, the political toxicity of uh, the war and its ending and the stab in the back myth and all this sort of stuff. Germany, uh, much like France, much like Britain in the 19th century, was far more inclined, German people were far more inclined to define German identity ethnically by a question of race, a question of blood. And this is one of the machines, one of the kind of the ideas that drove unification forward, you know, that people in uh, Bavaria have essentially the same uh, ethnic uh, identity as people in Prussia, even though over these big expanses this was often not the case and they, was, they were kind of culturally uh, quite different. Uh, but it was a, a kind of a unifying idea that automatically requires finding um, the other, finding those to, to exclude. And one interesting um, aspect of this period of time is the development of um, leagues within Germany, new organisations uh, designed to further uh, the goals of German nationalism. For example, the uh, Navy League and the Pan-German League, um, which some historians have read slightly too much into. They have uh, viewed them as kind of proto-Nazi organisations, which I don't think is, is possible, really. You, you need for um, the radicalisation, the political radicalisation of the First World War, really for, for kind of Nazism uh, to a, exist. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Um, though they did have ideas, similar foreign policy ideas of expansionism and Weltpolitik and um, the seizure of Eastern Europe, the creation of labels around Eastern Europe um, as the Nazis. But the, the, the fact of the matter is that Hitler was not an original thinker. 
he was um, somebody who who lazily and easily cherry picked uh, reactionary ideas from the past thirty or forty years of uh, German writing on on the on the right wing fringes. There were people um, similar to Hitler um, who didn't receive the same level of prominence and, and publicity. He did basically the same thing. There was an entire generation of people um, who had read. Uh, many of the, the kind of the pamphlets and booklets of right-wing scribblers and uh, reactionary stuffed shirts and uh, kind of old kernels and things like that. Uh, and Hitler was the person who was able to set it all out in Mein Kampf and he happened to have a, a friendly publisher in the guise of Max Armin. So what we can see is the a series of social, economic and industrial tensions uh, emerging between um, the uh, upper classes, the ruling classes, and a new rising proletariat as a result of rapid industrialization, very successful industrialization in Germany, and um, the uh, toxic, um, xenophobic, nationalist ideas uh, taking root in an era of kind of radical national expansion and warfare. Um, so Germany has all the ingredients um, for the development of fascism. But it, what it, it needs really is this kind of crisis moment. Um, the thing, if on the other side of the First World War, and this is where we kind of step into uh, Russia, into a big part, into Italy as well, is the Russian Revolution. So um, the uh, the First World War that produces defeat, that produces the stab in the back myth as explanation. That same war also features. Um, the Bolshevik Revolution, and the fear that that would at some point be exported to Germany, um, and that um, uh, this f ties in with various kind of Hitler, um, uh, Hitler's ideas of Judeo-Bolshevism, that the uh, villainous Jews would somehow bring uh, the tyranny of Bolshevism down upon, uh, uh, upon Germany. And that, in Hitler's eyes, would be the moment at which um, the, the the Jews would wind up uh, undoing all that it all that it was to be German. Now, an interesting parallel with Italy is this kind of short time period in which political institutions are uh, established. Um, the Risorgimento, the period of reunion um, and rebirth of of Italy, that finally ends in uh, eighteen seventy. Um, is a uh, results in uh, an Italy that's fundamentally different than that which um, its its prime architects uh, Giuseppe Mazzini um, ha had in mind. The during the eighteen forties, the, the likes of uh, Mazzini had hoped for a series of liberal revolution, liberal nationalist revolutions across Europe, where nation states would emerge, and uh, constitutional. A republican governments with a rule of law and limited powers for the state would emerge and this would be uh, ideal. Of course what you get is you get uh, a nationalist revolution in Italy uh, as a result of the decline in the power of the Habsburg Empire but instead of that you winding up with a liberal state um, the uh, state that emerges is a highly authoritarian and conservative one which is uh, deeply uh, kind of an, in the thrall of the Catholic Church, um, and the Catholic Church holds the kind of the sword of Damocles over the state by uh, in, by the, the Pope refusing 
to recognise its legitimacy and saying ultimately to Catholic voters, this state is illegitimate because it has taken property from the Catholic Church um, in the guise of the Papal States uh, and um, don't vote for it. So it was fundamentally undermined from the start. Also, the uh, physical um, unification of North and South was never what uh, Camillo Cavour, the Prime Minister of Piedmont, had ever envisaged. What he had hoped for was um, a uh, uni union of the wealthy northern states of Italy, Piedmont, Lombardy, Venetia, places like that, uh, with the south, the kingdom of the two Sicilies, could go and, go and hang. And if what emerges as a result of um, uh, Garibaldi uh, is a union of the wealthy north and the poor south. So you have uh, two countries, essentially two Italies, fused into one, where there is immense social uh, conflict and tension, uh, a rising socialist movement, a rising trade union movement, uh, industrialization in the north and poor peasant conditions in the south, which again creates similar kinds of tensions, but more accentuated. When the opportunity to engage in the First World War comes along, um, the former socialist and um, uh, uh, populist journalist, he hasn't really transitioned to fascism yet, but, the, um, but Mussolini, as a journalist, began to agitate for war, um, along with uh, a generation of uh, other kind of pre-fascist um, uh, politicians of his age, because he believed that war would turn um, the people in Italy into Italians, that war would forge national unity, national sentiment, and that um, struggle uh, was what was uh, what was required. Roger Eatwell writes, During the first decade of the 20th century, a new Italian nationalism emerged, especially among intellectuals. The best-known figure in this movement was the author Gabriele D'Annunzio, uh, though before 1914 he spent much of his time outside Italy. More important in terms of forging new organisations were Enrico Corradini and Giovanni Papini. Corradini was hostile to parliamentary government, which he saw as weak, divisive and corrupt. He denounced bourgeois society as unheroic, and ultimately doomed to defeat by more disciplined and martial societies. Initially influenced mainly by Germany, after, uh, after Japan's victory over Russia in 1905, his eyes turned to the new sun which was rising in the east. Corradini sought to found a new Shinto-like secular religion based around the mythology of nature and heroes. He believed that Italy, like Japan, was a proletarian nation, potentially strong and coming force which would overcome a decadent rival plutocratic powers. In 1910, Corradini was speaking of a national socialism which could appeal to the working classes by offering new economic opportunities both at home and in Italy's colonies. It's really interesting um, how and this is a, a, a kind of a, a trope that carries on through much of uh, Mussolini's discourse all the way to the Second World War, that France and Britain had uh, were plutocratic powers. These were, they were powers uh, run by, essentially, uh, wealthy elites, which isn't far, of, far off the mark in some regards, but this had left them kind of uh, weak and sort of effeminate uh, and... Uh, pampered and unable to fight. The idea that modern warfare 
was about kind of industrial and scientific levels of organisation and not about manliness particularly, was quite antithetical to Italian fascism, um, which really does explain Italian fascism's failings in warfare uh, later on. Um, but a, a new kind of movement based around warfare and labour and masculinity was um, what uh, the likes of Corradini uh, argued uh, would be um, a kind of the, the way in which uh, Italy would kind of spiritually redeem itself, emotionally redeem itself. And um, the divided nature of Italy at the time uh, and the uh, economically uh, backward half of the country uh, was in some ways in fascist discourse tied in with this notion of effeminacy, that um, Italy was effeminate and weak and was being um, kind of dominated by other powers. And so uh, a new way of thinking about things would, would, would change things. After the First World War, um, the um, Italy that survives the First World War is one that is humiliated at the Paris Peace Conference uh, many of the demands of the Treaty of London in 1915 that the Italians believed they were getting uh, in terms of territory for participation in the war were broken and the uh, Italian delegation eventually withdraws from the Supreme Allied Council at the uh, peace conference um, and demanding the uh, what they called the, the unredeemed or the irredenta lands. Um, the uh, belief that had prevailed in the war that Italian intervention would be short, brief, glorious and enough to get Italy at the top table um, was um, uh, fading uh, during the war uh, and instead the belief that the war had been a, a, a terrible disaster um, um, seeped through uh, the Italian workforce uh, particularly those who had not fought but had put up with the kind of the inflation uh, and uh, other um, damage to their working and living conditions. Um, some soldiers, some officers particularly, who returned home in 1918 and 1919, um, returned home to economic and social chaos. And they returned home to striking workers waving the red flag. Uh, and their sentiment, their uh, thinking was, we have been fighting at the front line. Um, and we have come home to this, we've come home to you traitors um, waving the red flag uh, of the Bolsheviks uh, and this is obviously why we've lost, it is a kind of you riffraff at home. So this, this sort of the stab in the back myth, not that that term was ever used in Italy, um, well there's a sort of a kind of like a variant of, of stab in the backism that was never in Italy anti-Semitic and anti-Semitism really doesn't feature particularly in, in Italian fascism at all. It's exceedingly unpopular in Italy. But um, the belief that the, the working classes, uh, particularly those who have listened to socialist agitators, have uh, let the army down, stabbed the army in the back, and the idea that there is an enemy within, a traitor within, to be rooted out mercilessly, is what sees young men joining, the, who, some who have fought, some who haven't, uh, joining the fascist squads in 1919. Okay, 
So that's just the beginnings of our look at the, uh, the origins of European fascism. Uh, and next time we'll look a little bit at Great Britain uh, and France and their development of fascist movements. Glad you've uh, listened to this. I hope you've enjoyed it, found it interesting. I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks, all the best, bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.